Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities seminar in their 1762 250th anniversary celebration series. The person who would normally be saying this is Professor Susan Manning, who sends her apologies because she's poorly today, so you've got me instead, Professor Randall Stevenson, if you're from outside the department, or even if you're not. One of an array of professors who are here, in the case of my two distinguished colleagues on my left, they're here to show that the Regis chair is both very old, but still very much alive and very much to the fore in recent and contemporary study too. Those two professors, to introduce them briefly, most of you will know them well, but on your left, Professor Alistair Fowler, who was Ridge's professor here between 1972 and 1984. He's a critic, I suppose, mostly of writing in the 16th and 17th centuries of writers like Ben Johnson, Edmund Spencer. There are also more wide-ranging studies of that period, Knight's Purple Maskers, about stars in the afterlife in 16th and 17th century poetry also a study of structural patterns in that period's poetry. Professor Fowler is also more generally still an analyst of genre, of kinds of literature, and a famous study of that name. He's also a historian of literature from the medieval time to the present day, and he's a very distinguished editor of the Oxford Book of 17th century verse, and perhaps most famously of his magisterial edition of Paradise Lost, which was recently, I think, described by The Guardian as being the best book of its kind of its age. And I still recall the amazement with which I experienced that text as a student, finding that Professor Fowler had worked out what stars Satan was likely to be looking at when lying at a certain angle outside Eden. And I remain <laughs> impressed by that, if I'm remembering it rightly, ever since. Appropriately for a man who could make even a footnote poetic in Paradise Lost, he is also a poet in his own right. I must add that his CV comes in around 41 volumes, and I'm giving you a very truncated <laughs> summary of that. Being equally brief, on your right, Professor Greg Walker, who's the present incumbent of the Chair of Rhetoric and Bell Lecture, or Rhetoric in English Literature, as he may prefer to call it. Since 2010, a very distinguished critic in a period just slightly earlier, perhaps, than Professor Fowler's, an editor of the Oxford Handbook of Medieval Literature, an editor of the hugely promising Oxford Textual Perspective series, <laughs> which is coming out um, now or soon, also medieval drama, and critically of drama particularly, but also writing generally during the reign of Henry VIII. I'm thinking of studies of writing and tyranny, of politics and performance, of plays and persuasion. As you can hear from that brief list, Greg clearly has a prodigious proclivity for punning on the letter P, so that I think having given you this panoply of professors before me, I will simply remove one of them, invite you to welcome tonight's two guests, and invite them to chat to us about the Regis Chair. <laughs> It has been said that it's hard to hear in this room. If you find that, could you please make a gesture like a distressed rabbit and people in front will speak up? I'll possibly invite you to move closer if it is a problem. Uh, well, thank you for that, Randall. Um, those of you expecting a, a high-level intellectual discussion about literature will be deeply disappointed in that we are going to chat mostly about the business of being Regis Professor and the, he the heading we were given was Regis professors then and now, and we kind of took them to mean both in Hugh Blair's day briefly, but mostly in 
the periods in which we've both been incumbent, my period being much shorter at the moment than Alistair's. They go back before that, though. They, you know, I, I've learnt a lot about religious professors since I took on this this uh, uh, this brief. Um, if you look up religious professor in the internet, one of the first things you come upon is hippo regius, and hippo regius possibly refers to my colleague here. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's the the name of a the name of an ancient city. Setting that in one side, the history begins as as Greg was was, was saying in the 18th century. Their royal appointments, uh, I mean the English one, begins in the 18th century. Royal appointments, and to begin with, Henry VIII's five were all designed as reform appointments to make things go the way he wanted them to go. Uh, and that has been, in one way or another, the occasion of many of the religious chairs. Um, the last uh, by a sovereign, or a sovereign's consort, was made by Prince Albert. Uh, and there uh, was one subsequently uh, made in part by Queen Victoria uh, I'm thinking of uh, Leslie Stevens' father, uh, appointed by Rosebery, but uh, um, uh, by Rosebery, but uh, with the enthusiastic acquiescence, I think, of Queen Victoria. But I see Alan Bell in the audience. He will give us the details on that, I'm sure. Um, how many of these ridges? Uh, chairs are there in all subjects? Maybe fifty. Have you found more than fifty? We looked on. Uh, well, we just we did look in Wikipedia, and uh, yeah. we're horrified to learn that we weren't in it. So it obviously is not working. Uh, but twelve in Glasgow, thirty-five in Scotland as a whole. Scotland has a larger share, I think, than England because of the perhaps we need more reform in Scotland, but it was su to supply deficiency and to inject, I suppose, funds. Um, in the chairs in English, religious chairs in some form of English, to begin with rhetoric and belles lettres, uh, rhetoric in English literature, and now, I suppose, uh, cultural politics, um, the, the three in Scotland are um, Glasgow, um, Aberdeen, and Edinburgh, or Edinburgh. Glasgow and Aberdeen, I suppose. Uh, the correct form of address of a Regis professor is not professor, but Regis. So watch it. <laughs> um, I don't think uh, I've got any more on that. Have you got anything to add on, the, on this? As you can tell, I'm going to be Michael Parkinson to <laughs> Alistair's Muhammad Ali in this discussion, so I'll just toss the occasion. I brought Terry Eagleton with me in case I can get oh, rid of One for matter, I'll just That's read selected waiting, waiting missile. <laughs> just see what you decide to say about that. But No, I mean, I think you've covered that. I mean, the idea of the, of the Regis as a strategic appointment clearly went horribly wrong in about 2010, I guess, <laughs> in order to make things happen that weren't happening before is the... And when things are changing as quickly as they were in the 16th century, you usually had to have appointed a professor to put right the last professor you appointed when we were all Catholics. So there are those problems. But shall we shoot forward yeah, why to not? a more recent epoch? Um, well, my next topic here is, is, have a list. is, 
is the things we might talk about. The structure, uh, the, the, the structure of, of governance. And um, here... Well, should we pause a minute? I mean, you've yes, got changing sir. duties down here as well, which Oh, we duties of bridges would come in here. What the heck do they yes. do? Yes. I hear what you crying. What are they do? for? Well, we've got a lot of paperwork on that. Um, <laughs> we have done our research. Um, or rather, Alistair has done our research for us. Soon, soon after I was uh, uh, here in, 70, in the 70s, there was a, a groundswell of objection to me. I wasn't doing enough small group teaching. Uh, in those uh, days, the staff-student ratio wasn't quite what it is now. Uh, it, in, in the uh, 50s, it was 75 to 1 very adverse compared with um, Oxford's 8 to 1. Um, so um, there was a real beef there, there was a real complaint. Uh, the amount of small group teaching was very considerable and small group was not very small. The uh, pattern then was 10, which is a very difficult number to teach. It's not big enough for a seminar really. Um, so there was a complaint to the dean. Uh, I was going to work into that through the structure because there are no more deans, are there? Um, but the dean in those days was the head of the faculty, uh, democratically elected head of the faculty, uh, chosen, I think, always among the professors. Are there any uh, departures from that? I think always from, a prof from, uh, from the professoriate. Uh, in in uh, those days. Well, uh, the dean uh, had me to his office uh, to, to not to give me a rub because he knew I was doing enough, but to say, tell them what you do. Well, I hated rather doing that because it sounded to be um, boasting, but um, I did work out how I spent my time. And uh, the, it worked out at um, uh, 307 hours uh, of... Um, a week? Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> no, no, not the, the, the that If there had been, <laughs> I would have done them. But no, this was, this was 307 days in the year of, um, uh, 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 of unavoidable activities. And another 48 and a half of optional things like the Scottish Arts Council, uh, advice to the minister, uh, printed books panel, one of the uh, things thought up by the Labour Party of those days, open university assessing, all of these were optional things, and British Academy uh, with uh, two or three London meetings each year, and so on and so on. Well, um, the compulsory part of it, which is really uh, the relevant thing here, I couldn't get out of this, is lecturing and seminars 19 days a year, uh, small group teaching only 16, that was what the complaint was about, uh, supervision 10, committees, which are all listed here, um, departmental, graduate studies, liaisons, senators, faculty, personal chairs, library, library staffing, etc. Then there were uh, assessorships, um, references for students, um, fundraising, um, 
keeping statistics, archives, um, library recommendations, all the sort of things that each of you, I'm sure, uh, does some of. The thing was that in those days, it pretty well devolved on the uh, Regis chair. Now, Greg, you see, is in the fortunate position uh, of, of having a school at his command to do these administrative <laughs> tasks for him. And that is one of the big differences, it strikes me. It may look different. I think it probably does look differently to Greg. I think there's um, uh, a, a reduction of the workload of the Regis professor, uh, a spreading out of the jobs, the admin in particular, done very largely through the school. And the second broad impression I have is that there's a change from a democratic system to a line management one. And Greg may seem to be at the top of the line management, but there, there are others who can command him. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what I was going to say. I mean, in your period, the Regis professor was the professor, is that right? And you would yeah. be the head well, of the department. Well, there was two of us, and the headship rotated, mm. and we were extremely keen to make more professors as soon mm. as we could so as it, so that it would uh, rotate more widely and uh, possibly take some of the load off. But I had um, uh, a very different sort of person in Ken Fielding, uh, different from me in, in most ways. He was a, uh, a careful planner and uh, he uh, had a tremendous eye for detail. So that we made a sort of working team in that um, I was gallivanting about to these other things and uh, Ken was looking after the uh, Dickens project. He was involved with the Dickens letters and uh, uh, many details of running the department. So he did all the work? He did all the work. <laughs> That's how it, yeah, I, I told you he'd have a different view of it. Because, I mean, nowadays the, the, the chair doesn't have any relationship to management at all, really. I mean, it's, no. it's an entirely separate structure in that there are heads of school, heads of college, the vice There are deans, although they now live at a lofty level and have kind of particular briefs that we no longer They, they retain the name. Of. Yes, yeah. so that, that still exists. Mm -hmm. But the structure is entirely different, and the university would run perfectly well, I suspect, without religious professors of any kind at all to to fulfill those functions. So it's become more marginalized, certainly. Although I'd argue that the workload has probably increased as a result, simply because we do a lot more pointless things than you did in those days. Sure. Largely to kind of keep us busy, I guess. I mean, the committee structure is presumably a lot more pop populated by different yeah. levels of activity. I mean, having a school, I think, only, not having been here before there were schools, but I suspect what it means is that there's just a different level in which the same things are done again, because there's a lot of duplication with various committees, which means the same things seem to be talked at at different levels and come back and go up again, and conclusions are reached which are then overturned. But in your day, you would just say, let it be so, and oh, things yeah. would happen, yes, I yes. presume. Or people would say, no, no, I won't. <laughs> which you, you did have the power to kill them. <laughs> I wasn't equipped with any any religious mace or anything like that, <laughs> but I certainly felt like it a few times. Um, but 
to come back on you on the workloads business, um, I wonder if uh, there isn't um, more activity not doing any more in substance. Let me explain what I mean by that. The, there's been huge growth, of course, but um, the number of students is actually not all that different. Um, I've got the figures there. Um, the department in 72, 1972, was 850. Well, it's now 1,000. Not hugely different. Is that single subject? Uh, that's the uh, full-time equivalent of all the major options, mm -hmm. but the English part only of them. Over all four years? Uh, no, there are only, only two honours years, oh, I would honors remind years, you. So yeah. yes. Sorry, did you say honours? <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that, that uh, figure of 850 and 1,000, I think, is, is, is all students. Right. Mm. But it's not, uh, I mean, obviously, if you took every student in every class and added them up, it would be, it mm. would be more. You're taking fractions of students. Yeah. Um, the honors class was uh, 60 and 52 when I graduated, and we've got a longer time scale there, and to about 240 now. So there's four times uh, the number of students. But the staff is very much bigger. The staff in 72 uh, was uh, 30, and it is now 36 plus 40, because you have to, cu you have to count the tutors in, too. So there's 76 people doing the teaching now, which is, uh, if I'm right in my arithmetic, it's not always right, but it looks to me like, like more than double. No, it's an illusion. <laughs> it's changed. So you, you can look at it again, you'll see those figures are smaller. But you were able to bring in people when I was looking at that list of luminous visiting lecturers who oh, came and helped Oh, yes, that's out. a subject in itself. Um, that's one of the few changes. I, I made very few changes, really, because everything that I was, I was suggesting would be shot down or there wasn't a plan to do this. I wanted a system of classes, big seminars like, like America because I, I loved teaching in America, enjoyed it really, really uh, a great deal. Uh, but you couldn't do it here because there wasn't at that time the plant, the rooms for it. So a lot of the things I tried to do, I couldn't do, but um, one thing is I did do, Greg just mentioned, and that is to, to bring a lot of visiting lectures in. I've got a... It's, it's, uh, this is maybe something you take for granted now, but I rather feel it's a sort of golden age of visiting lectureships because there isn't the money for it in the same way now. But looking at a list here in, in 73, 74, um, it was, um, they're not all distinguished, but there are really quite a lot of distinguished, uh, distinguished ones. Tell us the ones that aren't distinguished. <laughs> yeah, well, they might have become so. Well, since, said, you know, all in Frank, Frank, Frank Ellis, Hennig Cohen, American, um, uh, Tom Roach, great Renaissance scholar, Michael Hamburger, the poet and translator of poets, Jeffrey Hill, and there's no yeah. description, uh, Christopher Butler, Moxford, who was a pupil of mine, I could put the screws in him and get him to come and lecture. Uh, Ian Donaldson, who has um, just uh, brought out the biography of 
of uh, Johnson that will be with us for a long time, Norman Sherry, Conradian, uh, Harry Levin from Harvard, and um, R.S. Thomas, the poet, John Berger. I've moved on to visiting lecturers who um, had, had been given prizes in some way, uh, like the James T. Black Award, and we started having them to lecture. Well, these people would be lecturing on the actual syllabus. No, they came and gave, gave one visiting lecture. Mm -hmm. I usually managed to coax them to give a seminar as well. And um, sometimes they, they weren't all that keen. John Berger, for example, had never lectured in his life. And I had a lot of correspondence with him before he came to give his lecture. I'd given him, given him an award for the Honorable Schoolboy. And he said, um, uh, what's involved in a lecture? How long should it be? Um, uh, and what sort of subject? And he kept ringing up and saying, uh, will it matter if it's five minutes too long? And <laughs> so on. When it came, when the lecture came, it was brilliant and it was exactly the right length. That's to say the length that people would stay awake. <laughs> so uh, it was, they, there was a, a, a great crowd of these lecturers, really, and they, they, um, we entertained them uh, to a meal after the lecture, of course, but we also had them to stay, and that was very illuminating. Some of them were right bastards, and some of them were <laughs> really very... John Berger, communist as he was, was a real sweetie. He, <laughs> you couldn't have a better guest, uh, the right it's sort of com communism. communism. Huh? Well, yeah, and he, he, was, uh, he was doing great work with the migrant workers at the time, uh, the uh, sort of Turkish migrants that get thrown out of Germany and so on. He was right in there writing for them. Um, who else? Stephen Spender, uh, Christopher Ricks, Magnus Magnuson, Peter Levy, uh, Rory Watson, Norman McCaig, and Eddie Morgan. Uh, that's all in one year. Uh, at least the first half of that was all in one term. That suggests you had a budget. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I couldn't operate without a budget. and. Um, that apparently has changed a good deal. You find it more difficult to get money for everything you want to do, I expect. It comes in cycles. I mean, yeah. again, the, the idea that it's me that can do it is, mm. I think, from a previous age, and that it's, it, it's now the head of the college, the head of the school, and the head of department. Who yeah, has but the you're you, you've got to feed them with ideas for what to spend the money yes, on. Yes, they simply say no, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's, the that's what I was getting at, you see. That's a managerial system whereby in the previous uh, system, deans, deans were professors who knew the problems of the departments uh, from the inside, and they were sympathetic, and they did what they could. They were marvelous. Remind us about this idea of democracy that you spoke. What, what is that exactly, and how does it work? <laughs> deans elected by, by what? Uh, elected by the professors, by the other professors. One of their own number hmm. was... In public assembly or yeah. by acclamation? Yeah, at, at a faculty meeting. Gosh. Really? And, I mean, everyone Primitive democracy, you well, might say. Yeah. Athenian, possibly. Because, I mean, all uh, democratic appointments are made entirely by the head of college now, so we're all elected by her. <laughs> That's an advanced form of democracy. Yes. Well, it's yeah. almost democratic in that the field is usually narrowed down to one, so that there's a... <laughs> a fairly straightforward voting process. <laughs> One electorate and uh, 
one nominee and the vote tends to go with them. <laughs> I think we're getting on dangerous ground here. Maybe we should move yes, to another right. topic. So what were you teaching them in those days? Ah, the, the yes. What they, what they, well, there is my impression. I, I keep putting up these ridiculous ideas, but I expect you to knock them down if they're wrong. I'm waiting it, for questions. It, it seemed, yeah. Oh, I see that'll come. Well, fair enough. I think the subject in the 70s, or at least to start in the early 70s, the subject was literature. The definition of a professor then was uh, someone who professes the subject, and the subject was English literature. So you taught the canon. And this didn't mean there was no politics involved, but politics came in when politics was appropriate. If you're lecturing on Swift, naturally, since Swift was a highly political animal, politics came in. Uh, with another writer who was not political, politics would not come in. I contrast this with the, uh, the present state of affairs in which many of the lectures are not about the canon at all. They're cultural politics, and they're about the, uh, the politics using the, the politics of culture, using literature as examples. Um, that seems to me very interesting for uh, politicians and people who are aiming to inhabit the political world after they leave. It's less good for people who are aiming to teach English literature. And I think uh, the, the purpose of the teaching has changed in precisely that way. We teach, we used to teach uh, uh, budding academics what they would then pass on to others, to give them a, an accurate idea of the canon. That's fine if you're going to uh, be, uh, be an academic after you graduate. But now, gradually, as I taught, I could see this changing, that uh, people, instead of going into teaching, uh, or indeed academia, generally, after they left, they started going into, first, the media, uh, BBC, etc. Or, uh, a bit later, they started going into the city. Now, someone who's going to be a banker or a financier, hedge funds, they, their take on literature is naturally very different. But I don't think uh, it need be so different as it has become. I think um, having uh, uh, a good grasp of uh, uh, moral writers, sermon writers, uh, might be very useful for a banker. Um, but you probably don't see the change well, in the subject in the same way. Well, we might way. get some questions on this. Uh, well, would, they could come from you. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems, when do you see this, this as happening as a modern phenomenon? Because, I mean, going back to Blair's lectures on rhetoric and belles lettres, I mean, it, that's, in a way, what was surprising to me, although presumably shouldn't have been, was precisely how kind of generalist and political they were, in that he saw rhetoric and, and the study of belles lettres precisely as being a means to equip people to go out into the pulpit, to the, sure. to the bar, and to these general assemblies he spoke much of. And so it was precisely about literature and rhetoric as, as the, the groundings of the, 
the civic humanist, really. The yeah, he was teaching future sermon writers, mm -hmm. preachers, and, and lawyers. teachers. Lawyers, yes, yeah. some lawyers. Mostly the teaching profession that mm -hmm. he had to do with. They, they had another professor looking after the, the law. But well, anyway, there's a fair bit in those lectures about how you address a, a jury rather differently to a congregation or from a, an assembly of your peers. So, I mean, he, had, he did have this sense of, of an audience being not just people who would go and reproduce what oh, he yeah. was doing. He was a great generalist. He was, after all, chaplain to the army. Mm. Yeah, oh, I, I, I take that point. Oh, we still do that. We're all... <laughs> Your chaplain. Ex-officio <laughs> chaplains. Not necessarily any yeah. British army, but certainly. Yeah. An army. <laughs> Salvation army in some cases. Well, you can say then that the subject was more political once, mm. and it became political again after the uh, 68 mm. uh, student rising in... Munich and America, when universities were very se seriously changed and, in my view, very badly damaged. One of the, the, the chief uh, da damages uh, inflicted at that time, particularly in America, was the introduction of a, a cafeteria system of teaching. That's to say you taught what the students wanted to, to be taught. But no one uh, who is a student beginning knows the subject. And it, it seems to me that um, they've, they've suffered greatly from this. One of the inevitable consequences is that almost all teaching uh, uh, in America, and, and here now, because one of my impressions is of Americanization in every way, the subject has become Americanized. Uh, but in this particular way, uh, I mean that um, the modern period is preferred to all others. The modern period is the least suitable for teaching literature. Literature is, after all, what is remembered from past ages. Now, I'm interested in modern literature, don't mistake me, and I've even sometimes lectured on it, but it's, for me, a very small part of the duties of a university teacher to teach contemporary literature. For one thing, the reference books are not there yet. Uh, we don't know how to study them. We don't know what is important in the literature of our own time. It is what will last, but what will last? The stuff we write? Quite probably not. Something else, something that we don't know and therefore can't teach. So I think that has been a total loss, really. The subject has deteriorated to such an extent that it is not taken seriously in the way that it used to be. We have no clout. We have no leverage because uh, what we do is frivolous. Anyone can read contemporary novels. Discuss so, later. <laughs> I mean, well, let's come back to that in a moment. But I mean, get the, you, you said earlier that you admired the American system. Uh, I found it very enjoyable to teach. So we talk, talk us through the, the bits of the American system other than the cafeteria system, because I mean that's the thing that strikes me most about how well, things were different in the 80s. The cafeteria system happened in universities which were defeated by the student rebellion. Yeah. You know, the open files, references no longer meant anything because they all had to be okayed by the student. 
all of that decline of American education happened only in the bad universities or temporarily in the good ones. I, I, I expect there's some Americans here who will tear me to pieces afterwards, but this is my impression. Um, um, Harvard, Princeton, uh, and a number of other good universities recovered from this, and there's no cafeteria system there, and I believe there isn't one here, really, but there's the dangerous tendency towards it uh, all the time in I mean, Britain. You could look at it the other way around from a staff point of view and say that what is different about a, a, a choice system is that it gives staff researchers a greater opportunity to teach in something that they are closely associated with them, I mean, this idea of research-driven based teaching. I mean, would your view be that it's, it's better to teach across a broad area because it teaches you breadth? Or yeah. what about teaching 10 weeks on Milton or something like that? I mean, does that <laughs> appeal? Um, there, there are points to be made against as, as well as for that. It, it's no doubt pleasant for the, the lecturer, but it gives the lecturer far too great an advantage over the students. The best teaching, to my mind, is done when the teacher is scared stiff. The, uh, it's most weeks for me, it must be said. <laughs> what? It's most weeks for me. <laughs> well, the thing is that if you know... So what are you teaching it, then? What does that mean, <coughs> teaching in that it, context? You can't... Um, uh, if you take something like uh, the, the tutorial-based system, or Oxford, Cambridge, and some other places, um, the students have recently done intensive study in a particular text, written an essay on it. They are the experts in that. The tutor is not. The tutor can be really quite scared of the outcome. Some They, they deal with it in different ways. Um, I had a, a good friend, Oxford Dennis Burden, who wrote a very good uh, Milton book. Well, he once uh, said to one of his students, so do anything you like for next week. Tell me what it is, though, now. So um, the student said, I'd like to do an essay on Beddoes. And uh, Dennis Burton had never read Beddoes, at least not for many, many years, decades. And uh, the time he'd forgot about this, and the time came round for the tutorial, and uh, he said in his usual way, well, what have you got for me this week? Oh, Beddoes, sir, you remember? And Dennis had not remembered. He said, just one moment, I have to go to the loo. And he ran out. Fortunately, there was a door at that time, temporarily, between Trinity and Blackwell's, got into the basement of Blackwell's, bought the, 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 the Beddoes, all the Beddoes that they had, <laughs> took it to the loo, he was a truthful man, and read for five minutes intensively. And he swore afterwards that it was one of the best tutorials of his life. <laughs> now that's the kind of adrenaline-driven, scary tutorial that often works for tutorials. Now lecturing and seminars are a bit different, but what I'm saying is that it's not good for the lecturer to have too much of an advantage because then they're smug and they get behind their desks. So this is a bad format. I'm mm. in the, 
the, the, the other side of the desk from you. I, sh I should be sitting with you. I mean, there are some advantages in audibility in this arrangement, but it's really wrong. One should never be uh, um, confronting students. You should be among them. You're a student, too. And so it's not about imparting knowledge in that sense, then. It's about <laughs> you try You try and impart knowledge obliquely. And <laughs> if you haven't got any, <laughs> if you've got any, if you've got any, but you have about the contextualizing mm. of the thing and the politics, indeed, of it, if they're appropriate. Because um, I mean, one of the things we do now, which I don't think we've always, we haven't always done, is supervise dissertations in areas that we know very little on. So it's very often the case that we're reading up the week before what the the students going to come about, come and talk about, That's and that is a kind of, kind of I mean, it's a. No. Students are ambivalent, I think, or at least some have different views on this. And you know, what's the point of being supervised by someone who can't tell you what to go off and read? Is an argument one often encounters when I say I have no idea what you should look at on Irving Welsh or whatever. Well, there's different different levels of, of, of teaching, different aims and purposes. Uh, supervision of a dissertation, uh, you've got to know something about it to do that, and. Um, there's quite a lot of point in having uh, graduate students in your own subject. Mm -hmm. uh, there, the student being a postgraduate is less uh, likely to be damaged by having someone who knows everything and he knows nothing, mm. or she knows nothing. So it's, it, it will be different. but. Who would you say was the best teacher you ever had? I can remember a few lectures by W. L. Rennick, who was the uh, Regis uh, in 1952 when I graduated. And um, What was good about those, or what was most memorable? I think he was so um, immersed in the world of uh, Spencer, that he could talk about him and the um, business of buying him and reading him. Uh, I remember he he gave one one lecture on the forbidding subject of the of the shepherd's calendar, not a favorite work with students, um, and he 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 sat among us. And he asked us to imagine someone in, in Paul's churchyard going to buy a book. It never occurred to us that you went into a churchyard to buy a book, that there were shops round about St. Paul's. This is not <coughs> part of Spencer, but it was the contextualizing of Spencer in a natural way that showed us that you could do it be that world. But um, another of our tutors, who I also remember, did quite a different kind of thing. Derry Jeffers, Yeats guy, he, um, he, he gave us a, a lecture uh, on Hazlitt, what Hazlitt uh, had for his breakfast and who he talked to during the day, and it filled the hour rather uh, easily. Gosh, <laughs> the, the hour's over, and he said, well, 
Um, I hope you will read Hazlitt now. <laughs> I never have. <laughs> Not to be recommended as a way of lecturing, but I suppose I'm saying as there's a lot of different kinds mm. of lectures. But uh, I don't think an automatic introduction of ideology, uh, an automatic introduction of feminism, even when uh, there's no injustice to women at stake. And broadly speaking, there is. Don't mistake me about this. When the subject was set up in the late 19th century, it was set up by men in the interests of men to exclude women from the teaching. Look at George Sainsbury, another Regis, I'm sorry to say, Regis Professor. Sainsbury um, wrote a history of literature with hardly any women writers in it. Ludicrous. Emily Bronte, I think, and, and um, George Eliot, and that was about, oh, and Jane Austen. Uh, he had to have her because Scott said she was okay. <laughs> but uh, Sainsbury I have a lot of time for, uh, don't mistake me, I mean, he's, he, was, he was a marvelous take on the Regis chair. He was a journalist, but he was the kind of journalist who read five French novels before breakfast. He set a high standard of reading. But you see, if you have all the ideology that there is now in the subject, all the cultural politics, you don't read literature nearly enough. You know, take the judging of the Tate Black Award. A student can't do that because they don't know enough. So that uh, uh, every year there's, what, 100,000 titles? For the Tate Black Award, you have to read something like 300 novels in the year. 70 biographies, maybe 100. Now that's a lot of reading. And that's the level of reading that uh, uh, the professor, the lecturer, has to push at the students. Not a lot of political claptrap that will be different next generation, next government, next crisis. Uh, it's the permanence of the subject. That means you have to know it all to know what its proportions are. And the proportions um, are part of the experience of literature. You have to know which gear to be in in reading a particular work. Uh, that's what made the new criticism so badly wrong. They uh, were content with small bits of literature from which they drew political maxims, not the way to go. You have to have a lot of literature round about the bit that you talk about. It must all be in context, and in context with biography. When I was a student, I read no biography. I was a terrible student in this way, because biography was out of fashion then. Terrible to uh, condemn the students, <laughs> not to consider biographical factors. But the bi biographical factor may be the, the nub of the whole thing. Think of studying Joyce without knowing any of Joyce's biography. Or oh, Hazlitt without his breakfasting habits. That would be a, a severe loss to the canon, I A severe loss, but not irreparable. <laughs> we should pick it up at about 11 <laughs> and move on, I guess. What else have we got before we open up to questions? Oh, uh, well, now, we haven't got to the, 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 American, um, the Americanization of the subject, you see. <coughs> We've talked as if we're, we're really doing English literature, but we're not. Um, uh, the, 
One of the things about American teaching is that it's multicultural. Uh, multicultural is, is, to my mind, another name for American imperialism. That's to say, all people are capable of, of democracy, so long as they have regime change. American imperialism, and uh, it's a simple matter of just changing the regime. Now, multiculturalism means that it's very important to be studying cultures other than your own. They do a lot of this. In Stanford, they do very little American literature, very little English literature. But they do Egyptian and Iranian and God knows what. It's global multiculturalism. It's a duty to the nation to do this. Um, in this course that we're doing now here, I see a number of such subjects. Um, what have you got? Uh, body in literature, ideology in literature, metaphysics and melancholy, mad sex, writing the body politics, sex, seduction, and sedition. Uh, they are possibly... They're multicultural. This <laughs> <laughs> is where this, all this sex we read of comes from. It's, it's a multicultural problem. Well, it, it, it came from the notice board. Ah. <laughs> I mean, this may be advertising, of course. No one will do a course yeah, on I'm sure it 18th century I'm sure rationalism but call sure it sex it. and madness and you're in. But it's, <laughs> but it's the way things have gone in America. And I think it's the way, therefore, that they go here. Partly because a lot of our students come from America, MSc students. Hmm. A number do. But most, I mean, I presume most people come to Britain in order to study British literature. You'd be surprised why they come. <laughs> well, and the festivals. Yeah. And the haggis. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the idea of a kind of... I mean, where does the balance lie then? Because I mean, one of the things I've found quite difficult here is remembering that there is a a quota system on certain kinds of literature. So if you're putting together a, a course, you have to remember that certain writers who you think of as part of the canon aren't English. Conrad, for instance, turns out to be foreign. As does T.S. Eliot, all this sort of... I mean, are we going to make a kind of a quota of... Conrad was sweating his guts out to write good English, and he made a pretty good right. pass at it, yeah. I'd have let him in, but... Yeah. I think... Um, yeah, they, that's, that's uh, obvious, obviously difficult, but the categories one is using are important here. And um, I think there's a simple test, too, uh, of when the ideology is, is occupying too much room, and that is the quality of the... There must be uh, an aesthetic charge to the work, or it's not worth looking <coughs> For heaven's sake, there's so much good literature in the sense of enjoyable literature, great literature, or even good literature. You don't have to do awful literature. It might maybe a specimen from time to time. I'm very keen on the idea that it's a pyramid and the good stuff has to rest on the sludge down at the bottom. Um, occasional um, uh, unhurried look at pornography by all means, but <laughs> By and large, it has to give uh, an aesthetic thrill. And there's some quite good literature that's pornographic. Cleland, for example, mm. very good, uh, very good writing, but it is pornography. So I would say that that's a, a, a universal test. If aesthetic qualities are forgotten about, then the teaching has gone awry. So who, who does the judging? 
You and me, we just decide oh, the te these teacher, things. The teacher has got to do it, yeah. Obviously, they're, they're, they're in charge in the classroom. Mm. But call me a vulgar Marxist, if you will, but I mean, isn't that a way of just perpetuating the same canon rather than having oh, no. different ways into what qualifies as a no, that, that's, that's why it's important, I say, to read the whole thing and get a sense of the proportions, because the canon is always changing. New stuff is coming up. Yeah? Julian Barnes, good, quite a good writer. Um, so that uh, as the canon is changing, something else has to take uh, a lesser place in the past, so that there's a constant readjustment. T.S. Eliot said something about this in tradition and the individual talent in the end. Uh, if this were really being done honestly, uh, that's all that need be said. Uh, the ideologues say, of course, that we're, we're cheating on this. We're not really choosing the best. Mm -hmm. We're choosing the works that suit our own politics. And uh, in the case of, of, of uh, women writers, that's manifestly the case because few women writers were taught in the early part of the 20th century. Mm. So the feminists are right to that extent, but they have to keep in mind the aesthetics too. And they've turned up a lot of pretty crummy women writers. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a great deal of time names? for... Any <laughs> names for us? <laughs> There's a book by Janet Todd who I, I think is, does a great job. Don't mistake me, I think her, her work is splendid. But naturally, since she's digging up as many of these writers as possible, she digs up a, a, some that would be better left undug. Justly married. I think there may be questions. Um, <laughs> I feel, I feel so. To, uh, <laughs> to wind, I'm slightly worried that some of my students are here and the thought that reading bad literature is not a good thing might have this does not apply to the works of Thomas Eliot who you will be spending the next 10 weeks reading so don't worry about that but I mean well let's let's throw the discussion open to irate comments wild objections missiles and other things from the crowd hmm. uh, if you have questions please raise a hand in this time-honored fashion or shall I lob you some more wait and see give hmm. them a chance for God's sake uh, this is one of the things that's changed, you see, now a, te a teacher's tolerance level for yes, silence yes, between really questions and answers. Obviously, you want to, don't waste my time. Yes, come up with the questions. Yep. If I can flick to another class and we'll have another one. It's, <laughs> it's the media generation. It would be interesting to find out if people feel that there is a, a plethora of, of choice on offer that in some way re reduces the capacity to see a clear narrative, if that's what we're talking about, in terms of a canon of literary history or simply, oh, there's a question. Lou, what have you got? Well, I think it's more of a like concurrence, I guess. I agree. I, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. I think it's more of a concurrence or agreement in, instead of just a question, but at my university as an undergraduate, I made, one of my majors was English literature, and I was taught no Shakespeare, which I thought was absolutely um, shameful. Because, but what they focused on instead was um, the postmodernists, and they said that because that was now the one of the more important areas in our field, that that was what we should focus on. And I felt that it was done to the detriment of the well. What what I would suggest would be the slightly better works such as Shakespeare and the, the things I really love. 
and that's something that I've seen in, in a lot of my colleagues as well and a lot of my fellow students at the university. We had to go abroad to different, uh, on exchange for a semester to get any Shakespeare at all or anything from that era. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, it's always a danger <coughs> in school teaching in this country. You can go through school and do very little Shakespeare. Broadly speaking, uh, one can say that uh, maybe not a majority, but a sizable minority of schools begin literature uh, with uh, Neville Shute, uh, <laughs> or perhaps someone even more recent, undemanding stuff uh, with uh, a few really bold choices from time to time. And you, you can understand this. You have to look at it from the the school teacher's point of view there. They are uh, surrounded by barbarians and uh, to ask them to read something difficult is, 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 well, I mean, in some schools they, they staple one another's ears. <laughs> you know? Getting the attention of ear Isn't staplers. Isn't that just a fashion? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pretty recent fashion. And uh, who, they've got knives, you know, if not guns. Some of them. Inner London teaching is not is, is not uh, cosy, and if, if you're dealing with pupils like that, you you can you have to forgive them for cutting a few corners. There are bits of the canon that you're not going to be able to present to these people, and you you want to um, get their attention. Yeah. I agree what you're, with what you're saying. However, I'm from the Netherlands. I don't think I've seen a gun in my country. <laughs> <laughs> since I've been growing yeah. up and I've grown up there. However, would you say that m perhaps students are also underestimated in what we would find interesting from time to time in modern... Yeah, time? but yes, I was just indicating there is a, a discipline problem and they, they take the line of least resistance, the easy yeah. way. Ne Netherlands is an advanced democracy. You know, It really is. No, it it, uh, it is. There are... <coughs> Bad things happen from time to time, but it's it's advanced. It's it's uh, it's more more advanced than than we are here. I think. Mm. Um, I mean, it does raise a question about how university curricula interface, if that's the word I want, with the schools. I mean, I think when I was a, an undergraduate, the assumption was definitely that we came with a lot of stuff in our heads, but we didn't really know what to do with it. So there was a lot of isms going on in the first and second year to teach us to think differently about the things we were assumed already to know. Mm. We knew Shakespeare, we knew a, a kind of broad cross-section of literary text, but we didn't, we'd not thought intelligently about them. So there was deconstruction, Marxism, feminism, reading the things in different ways to try and free up our minds and make us more liberal thinkers. I mean, I'm not sure that that is the way to think necessarily now. I mean, I, I wonder whether I say this in my fogies hat, that stu school students are much better at thinking of, about things differently now. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. ism going on in the schools, but there isn't any more in the broad range of schools a kind of huge body of literature. You're not exposed to a lot of reading. It's certainly my kids weren't. No. They would read a, a much smaller number of literary texts than we did. Much smaller. So we're still assuming a certain kind of student is coming up to university with, that may not be quite what they are now. And so our first and second year is much more a kind of telling you about stuff years again, rather than the, the kind of yeah. 
cafeteria system that you were talking changed about. enormously. I had uh, um, people straight from school uh, in, in my college, which is BNC in Oxford, who had read the whole of Henry James before they came up to the university. The whole of him. And I probed that. It was true. <laughs> this guy really had read right through Henry James. Well, that does not happen now, I think it's fair to say. We could do a test. Who's read the whole of Henry James? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that this is a frightfully good test, actually, Alice. I used to think that there were quite a lot of things which the um, sorry if anybody's offended by this, that students weren't uh, mature enough to read, even yeah, here in sure. university. I'm not sure that Shakespeare should be taught in schools, because I don't think that many of them can understand it. I remember very vividly a very good um, student from the Outer Isles. I mean, it was in one of the years when we had we decided not to have King Lear or Hamlet in the first year course. And so we put Othello in the first year course here. And she came to me, she came to the tutorials, she came to me on her own at one stage and said he couldn't understand what the play was about. And when, when I talked to her about it, the point was she didn't know sexual jealousy. No. So no. the whole point of the play, completely over her head, and she was 19 or 20. And she, you know, sooner or later she would <laughs> get that experience and then be able to get the play. But until she got that, it was making no sense at all. Yes, I, I, I wasn't meaning it as a test. I just uh, say that that is um, a straw in the wind, that there aren't so many people coming up who've read the whole of Henry James. The question... There's one just there first, then yeah. we'll come here next, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Yep, go ahead. Um, yeah, I have a, have a simply simple question. I do work on, uh, on camera information hmm. in my PhD, and I work on... Professor Fowler's um, article genre and um, the literary canon. And now, my question relates to your position within those theories. Because, and maybe I got it wrong, and thank God I haven't handed in yet, and I have the chance <laughs> to ask. <laughs> um, I, got, I get the sense from that article, which is um, extra quoted and sort of one of like a, a very important piece of literature for secular canonical studies, that at that time when you were writing, your feeling for the controversy about the canon wasn't that hard. So from tonight, I got the feeling that you sort of have a, a, quite a specific take, quite a specific position within the idea of how we should relate to the canon um, within literary studies, whereas, um, the sense that I got from the article was that you were almost trying to um, relate in a quite different way, in a more uh, st structured way to the concept and the notion of kind, instead of focusing on his, its function and its way of responding to specific needs within the university. Is this true or did I get it completely wrong? And in that case, thank you for saying uh, You can't say everything all the time, you know. Uh, but I, I think the, the, um, the teaching of literature has, has changed a lot with respect to canon, hasn't it? I mean, I mean it wasn't a, a, a notion at all when, uh, in, the, in the 50s, 60s. Uh, it was assumed that 
there were just works of literature. But um, gradually it emerges that, uh, as Eliot said, there, there is um, um, a traditional um, canon of literature, and it is our duty, our, our mission, to change it all the time. It's constantly changing, and the changes must not be for short-term political reasons. It must be because we see that the work is better aesthetically, better morally, better politically, and so on. But as a whole, uh, we, we, we're not teaching a static canon. It's changing all the time. If you look at the, the list of writers who are, who are read now, it's totally different from the list that was read when I was a student. It's changed very, very considerably. There are some constants, because a lot of interesting criticism has built round about certain writers. But broadly speaking, there are rightly far more women writers uh, taught now than were taught in, in, the, in the 1950s. Far more. And, and, and many of them are very, very good. Um, and that came about not unpolitical. There were, there were serious political ructions in America over feminism. Departments were, like Princeton were, were broken apart by this uh, because the form of feminism that was taught there was, was a kind of ideological um, feminism of language. To my mind, the language doesn't matter. The language of feminism doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is that women should have justice and that we should read the good literature. That's enough. But, you see, politics has, is necessary. I can see that to produce changes uh, in the canon. Politics is necessary. But the kind of... What do you think's gone from the canon since this 50s or the 70s that would be worth putting back in again? Very oh, yes. I'll come to the question, I think. Yes, yes. We, we so mustn't forget this other question. No, I know. I'm going to... There's one over there, but yeah. name, name a name. Who should we be studying now that we don't anymore? All the sermon writers have gone. No one wants to read sermons. And, and done sermons at his best writing. There, there, there's no doubt in my mind that, that the best part of Dunn is not his poetry. It's his prose. Do study sermons. <laughs> the cultural studies ones you named. The body of literature does study sermons. Sex seduction and sedition does sermons from the restoration period. Yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I was really just joking over that. I'm sorry. I, I was being frivolous. Yes. <laughs> no harm in that. We, we've got to get yes, to this. Go on. Yeah. Um, there's just a, another question just on the subject. Carol, I'm not
Do you want to uh, speak to that? No, it seems to me to be right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. I quite agree. I, I think, you see, that a lot of, of, of the most recent literature is, is best read for, for pleasure. Uh, it's quite easy to read some of it. Uh, it's, uh, um, you can develop quite a, um, uh, a, quite a momentum with contemporary literature. And uh, th there are uh, some contemporary writers whom I've read all of, you know. You, you get an appetite for them. And, and uh, I mean, E.L. Kennedy, for example, Julian Barnes and so on. Um, you can find that very much more difficult to do when you go back in time. So I think the, the contemporary period can be left to the individual reader on the whole. But it's not just the contemporary period itself. I mean, the madness is actually, of course, is set. Yes, we're discovering Collins in some, in some ways for the first time, and he's a very modern writer, uh, Collins, of course. And, but uh, I, 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 certainly, I take the point that that's that's um, that's a fair point. Uh, um, it's Collins is specifically not for a political point for the legend of anything within himself. It's just because we, we read the text ourselves. Yes. So we want to do something that we wouldn't perhaps have already read. Right. But Collins, you know, is a popular writer today. There are people who have uh, no time for Inglet and, and who, have, who are in quite different subjects who read Collins for pleasure. He, and, I mean, he's a big seller, Collins. And uh, so I, I think of him as, in some ways, an honorary contemporary of ours. Because he was uh, he was never taken very seriously before, except by Dickens, perhaps. But sorry, we're wandering into literature, which is one there first, and then we'll come down to the circle. Actually, a question specifically about the professorship itself. In your preface at the start, you talked about how sometimes it was a political appointment to shape opinion. Um, does that work? And you, you both emphasised that you did have sort of little um, real input certain things that you'd be shot down at certain points. But in truth, does it actually work in the opposite way? That you have a role in shaping things such as the canon or literary policy or things like that, using this sort of position of influence? And has that changed over time, given that we have two opinions here? Well, what do you think? Well, I'm always tempted to say it was better in your day, and you're <laughs> saying it's all gone to pop since my day. I mean, I think it <coughs> No, but you, you have to take a longer time base than that. Yeah. And, um, I, I mean, I, well, I mean in, in my case specifically, I guess, that the, it was made clear to me democratically by the principle that my job was to bring more drama in, as it were. I mean, there was that sense in which he thought, given that at least one of his offspring was currently writing plays and having a career in the theatre, it would be a good time to become much more involved in the theatre and this kind of thing. So there was a kind of unspoken belief that you know a Regis professor should do something and that was kind of my brief I don't know whether that was also true with you more ad hominem in my case because the um, uh, the department that I came to was uh, divided by two different conceptions of uh, governance um, previously the two professors Jenkins and Ken Fielding I'd been at loggerheads because Ken Fielding came from a training college and had a training college assumptions, uh, whereas uh, Jenkins had been at a, 
very traditional, very hierarchical uh, London college, College of the University of London, where uh, he really had power. Mm. And uh, Ken Fielding uh, made it clear to me from the first go off that all the professors were equal, right? <laughs> well, I was happy with that, that's okay. Um, so we got on well on the whole. Uh, my job was, I suppose, to uh, bring peace to the department. And the first thing I did uh, was to see everyone in it, all the lecturers, one after the other, and find out what they wanted. Uh, which is one definition of democracy, <laughs> uh, primitive form. And uh, of course they all wanted different things, but um, one of the things they wanted was to have um, um, more small, small group teaching. You know, and um, there was difficulty here, as I was saying earlier, about the, about the plant. But the biggest change that I, I suppose I, I made uh, was... Uh, to do away with a system of many, many lectures. When I came, uh, the students sat on their bottoms every morning, every day of the week, for lecture after lecture after lecture. Well, I spent some time at Glasgow University where um, they used to throw things at the lecturers if the, if the lectures were not entertaining. But this didn't happen at Edinburgh. Still Nobody do that. threw things. They, do, they don't do this? Oh, they do. Oh, they do? Good. I'm glad. Well, <coughs> things, things have improved since my time. Knives, <laughs> guns, <laughs> <laughs> But there were too many lectures, and um, there was no time to read the literature. And I could see that this vast amount of literature out there that had to be read. It's not in the head until it's passed through the eyes. And at the lecturers, they were hearing about it, but they weren't reading it. And so we did all sorts of things. Uh, cut the lectures down to quite a small number, one, one, one a day, I think, probably, something like that. Pretty much what you've got now. And um, also arranged speaking of the works. Uh, if they're too difficult to read, try reading them aloud. And we're Paradise Lost. Everyone shrinks from Paradise Lost. It's actually a great read if you get down and read it fast and get the sense of the proportions of it. And uh, don't waste your time with notes and editions um, with all well, notes was, covering most of the, the page. Oh, well, <laughs> you, can't, uh, you can't avoid some of that, I suppose. But uh, we, we, we had a reading. Uh, this was Roger Savage's idea, I think, maybe. And we all took part. Great competition for Satan's part, of course. <laughs> and, um, the, uh, the reading of Paradise Lost took only five hours. So if any uh, student says to you that, oh, they didn't have time to read Paradise Lost, you didn't have five hours? Hmm? Oh, you weren't taking it at a big enough lick. I was wondering if you'd be able to say a few words on the public role of the Regis Professor, especially, oh, this, this is perhaps an extension of Barron's question earlier, 
and you touched upon it, like, um, mm. about, you know, speaking to ministers, perhaps. And I was wondering if you could say some words specifically within the context of university reform, if reform is too polite a word, and the relentless attacks that go on um, specifically against these humanities and what your role within that field is. Yeah. That's a very interesting question and a, a very prickly one, really. And um, it's, uh, uh, it's, you can, an, I, I could answer it, I'm sure Greg could, on a number of different levels. <clears throat> One of the things that we are involved with just now is uh, the managerial revolution that affects every institution in the country and is, to my mind, ruining most of them. Uh, there are attempts to push back against this, but you can see that uh, it, it has ruined the libraries uh, in large measure for research purposes. Um, and uh, so there is a, a role, I think, of professors um, uh, resisting. Uh, resistance against government is always necessary in the educational field because government wants to use education for its own purposes, naturally. Uh, this resistance used to reside in the principles. Uh, Barnett, for example, nearly lost his job. He was so violent in opposing government. Uh, sometimes the uh, principles have been establishment figures themselves, like Swan. But a sophisticated man and able to do the best that he could inside government for the universities. At the moment, the humanities are really taking a lot of hard knocks, and, and authors too. Um, every year, the public lending right is cut, uh, and, and, um, and every year, it's more difficult to live by writing. Um, the public interface, well, this is partly what we were talking about earlier, that uh, a lot of the religious functions have been taken over by other people here. The, um, uh, the upper structure of the university, uh, the, the school and so on, um, are interfacing with government but um, evidently doing a lot of things that the government uh, would like to see done. Um, it was very different, I suppose, in that um, I had a great deal of contact, far more than I wanted, uh, with um, Open University, Murray House, for example, um, assessing the quality of uh, the... Um, the teachers training to teach English. Um, there's probably some of that still goes on, but it won't be the radius who does it, I should think. Is it? It is? No. No? No. no. Um, I suspect currently that being the Regis professor doesn't give you ex officio a, a, a way into almost anything now. I mean, you have to use it you at lucky, second... Lucky devil. Well, I mean, Shammy for, for better or worse, <laughs> you have to kind of use that to get onto committees in order to use yeah. the committees to do things. So. Well... What time do we have to finish, by the way? I mean, I mean should uh, we be right? I was going to suggest, Greg, 
regret that we do need to finish in about five or ten minutes. Oh, right. yeah, so there is one more question from the floor that would prevent me from asking the last one. Is there another question? Let me ask one then. Yeah. Um, uh, thinking of Hugh Blair, I'd like to get your both your takes on Hugh Blair. What was the purpose? Why was there a professor of rhetoric and belles lettres in the first place? What was the function of this? What's the subject for? Mm -hmm. Now for Blair, as Alistair said, it was primarily taste. To teach taste, which means the taste, not a narrow sense of taste, but a taste which is both aesthetic and moral to enable people to be citizens in, in the society as it is, mm -hmm. not in some future society. And also to enable them to write and speak as citizens who can make, the, make themselves uh, understood, believed, and so on, using with all, all that rhetoric implies. Now, I wonder whether the decline of the notion of rhetoric and the replacement of belles lettres by English literature have meant a change in the nature of the subject so that Blair's notions now seem hopelessly old-fashioned, or whether they if reinterpreted, they could be seen as what you actually consider yourselves mm. still doing. Shall I go first? Or go ahead. I mean, I think inevitably there's a circularity to that argument because I read Blair in the light of my own gender and prejudices anyway. But I mean, it seems to me that he's doing something much more modern than probably the 19th century. I mean, that, that resistance to the idea of Bell Letter and the changing of the name of the the chair to English literature because belles lettres was you know, already a kind of a term of disapproval mm -hmm. showed that they'd lost a sense of what Blair thought he was doing, which was that very active creation of a kind of firm core to a subject, which, which meant that English wasn't a kind of inward-looking discipline of just about taste because taste was a public concept. And there may have well have been a kind of Scottish dimension to that, that there was an, a, an attempt to learn the language of power in order to contest it and take a claim of part there. So, I mean, it seems to me that we're still in a world where English has to claim the justification for itself and it's a public role. So, I mean, in a sense, I, I do think that the politicization of literature is inevitably a good thing because it enables yes. a much wider entree into debates. That politics and politics, I entirely agree with you there. I mean, the, 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 that was the time when Sheridan was being brought north mm. to teach the Scots how to how to get power. That's um, usually seen as quite a craven thing, when I don't think it... No, it, it's not. It, Blair had a good uh, sense of rhetoric, uh, something that was lost subsequently. De Quincey is to blame for a lot of this, mm. and the attack on rhetoric. Mm. Uh, the idea that rhetoric is, is, is pompous and ponderous. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's efficient writing. And uh, some uh, very interesting uh, work has been done by uh, Don Hirsch, among other people in, in, in the States, to show that aesthetically good writing is the most efficient. It is the writing that, is, that gets its meaning across best. So in order to persuade people, you have to have what uh, Peter was calling uh, taste, mm -hmm. but taste, of course, in this particular sense of rhetorical efficiency. Mm -hmm. I mean, I expected to find Blair's lectures alien and quaint and odd, and what surprised me was just how familiar they were. I mean, it was Cicero and Quintilian and the rhetoric 
rhetoric as the, as, you know, the, the man of able speech trying to do good in the world. It's comparative and general literature. Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, we call it different things at different points, but it's still that kind of engaged agenda that means it's an important discipline, I think. Sorry, you're winding us up, I think, with that. I'd love to wind you up still further. I was the last person to give lectures on rhetoric in the department. So you were, Jeffrey. In 1960, it, it, was, it stopped in 1964, I think. And Cairns Craig told me that the one thing he remembered from my lectures was what I said about the smoke, the fog index, which was essentially a way of looking at uh, writing to... Um, to get the, the, to have the easiest form of um, absorption, and I, I realise now that really what I was teaching people was how to write editorials for the Sun. <laughs> <laughs> Much as I'd like to wind up our two professors further in that subject, I, I do feel we need to stop. Although it's a real shame to, I think we just about reached the point that I wanted to ask a question as to what is this thing that makes for aesthetic value and what does make language communicate best. This is not the last of the seminars for IASH or indeed within the Department of English Literature in which questions like that can be addressed or you can come back and celebrate with me, not with everybody working in what I think is still the most intellectually challenging and imaginative subject that there is, stronger now than at any time in the last 250 years. That's a debate we can continue into weeks beyond this one. Meanwhile, I think it would be fair to say that metaphorically we have had our ears stapled for the last hour and a half in the best possible and nicest way. Just to show I was paying attention all the way through, I shouldn't have been trying to introduce a prodigious panoply of promising professors because that's not what they should be called, the regii, on which note, what can I say except regis, regis, thank you very much. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.